This is Missing Alyssa, a podcast documentary series about the unsolved disappearance of Alyssa Turney, a teenage girl from Phoenix, Arizona. Alyssa has been missing since 2001. Hi, I'm Ottavia Zappala, and this is episode 12 of Missing Alyssa. Be there at the deathbed, sir, and I'll give you all the honest answers you want to hear. Be there at my deathbed, Sarah, and I'll give you all the honest answers that you want to get. If you remember, Sarah met with her father after his release from prison and secretly recorded a conversation where she confronted him about what happened to her sister. Sarah decided to make the segment public. I'll get back to that later in the episode. Following the release of the previous episode, where I interview Alyssa's stepfather, Michael Turney, we were inundated with messages. Everybody had a strong emotional reaction to the interview, and most of you said it was really hard to finish listening to the interview. The most common response was anger and frustration. Many of you wanted to know how I managed to keep my cool as he belittled and talked over me. You're a reporter? <laughs> no, you're not. I mean, reporters don't even talk the way you're talking. You're taking wild guesses and steps and everything else. You don't even have your facts straight. Listeners were annoyed that he didn't answer some of my questions. In particular, he brought up his issues with the union and other matters from the past, but refused to explain the connection with Alyssa's disappearance. You got to tell you what, go back from the beginning and get some real information about what's going on. Go back and get the letters from Bill Goodling and the ones from Congressman Bob Stump. Maybe you'll get a better understanding. Many times, when I confronted Michael Turney with his statements from the interview he gave ABC News in 2009, he responded, were you there? Or asked where I got that information, even though I was quoting his own words. Dude, that's amazing. We come up with all this stuff. How about the time I had sex with chickens on Friday? You want to print that? Well, but what do you Are you nuts? Oh, come on. What do you guys? This is why I don't want to talk to you, because you're full of shit. Some people were shaken by his reaction when I asked him about Alyssa telling his former lover, Diana Boardman, that she had had sex with her stepfather at the age of nine. So, Tony, do you know what, what uh, that woman, Mrs. Boardman, told police? I don't have a clue what Mrs. Boardman said. She said that uh, they would, when Alyssa was nine years old, uh, she said that Alyssa told Miss Boardman that uh, she was having sex with you. And, and that Ms. Borden, Ms. Boardman told police this many years later. <laughs> Why did you me? Because it's absolutely asinine. There was some speculation regarding the potential slip-up. When he referred to Alyssa's disappearance as a murder, then corrected himself because you never know on an investigation, especially when there's a murder involved, if, if there is a murder. I mean, you're sure that Alyssa's dead, right? Probably. There you go, see? You can read minds, too. I'm impressed with you. Sarah pointed out that he didn't have any kind words to say about Alyssa and didn't seem concerned with her fate until the last few minutes of the interview. But by the way, thank you for keeping light on my daughter, missing daughter. Listen to the deathbed comment once more. Be there at the deathbed, sir, and I'll give you all the honest answers you want to hear. When he says he will give honest answers right before dying, that seems to imply that the answers he's giving now are not honest. I could be wrong, so I asked him about it during my interview. This is what he said. 
uh, you told her that you would tell her the truth on your deathbed. I told my daughter because I've been suicidal for since 1993, ma'am. I've been under MD psychiatrist for all that period of time. Did you, did you get the facts on that? Probably not. Who cares? The point of it is, is I told Sarah, what would it take to get you to stop being so angry? If I were to go confess this and make a deal, they put me to sleep and kill me within 10 days, would that stop your anger, Sarah? If we went to court and I was found not guilty, would that stop your anger? You're wasting, you're burning yourself up over something that's innuendos, lies, and bullcrap because people love to hear these kind of stories. They eat it up. Uh, that's what I meant when I talked to my daughter. I said, most people, when they're dying breath, they tell the truth. That's what I meant, being dramatic or whatever you want to call it. Show up at the last minute of my life and come and see if I'm going to confess to something I didn't do. I'm never going to do that again. I don't give a rat's ass. They put me in prison forever. I don't think that really answered my question. To recap, he says he's been suicidal for many years. Then he says he told Sarah that to defuse her anger. He says Sarah is just wasting her time trying to get the truth out of him and that people just love to hear these type of dramatic stories. Then he says most people tell the truth before dying. He explains that he was being dramatic. Finally, he says that he'll never confess to something he didn't do. Following this interview, I had a casual chat with Sarah. Do you think that when he said, especially when there's a murder involved, if there is a murder involved, do you think that was a slip up? Yeah, a thousand percent. I think that's extremely indicative of what he did. He knows deep down inside what he did and it will slip. And I think it's very important to keep questioning him so that we can listen again and again to these answers as they change because they will. More slips will come. And I think that's why he tries to avoid interviews. Why this was the first interview he had done in almost 10 years. Why he still hasn't given an interview to the police. Because these things will happen. Because his versions change quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. Every time you talk to him, you find out something new or something had changed. My whole life have been these huge stories, massive conspiracy theories, and nothing has come of it. None of his stories ever play out. If you look at 99.9% .9 of the comments on the internet, no one sides with him. I think in this whole process since 2016, that we've been talking about it. There was one person that said this is a witch hunt. Yes, there was one comment where someone said the, the podcast was a witch hunt against right. him. When the 2020 first came out, there were a lot of family members saying that can't be true. You know, he did this for me or neighbors, they would come out, he fixed my car. But isn't that the way people spoke about Ted Bundy? This yeah. is how serial killers or terrible people hide in plain sight. Right, yeah. I remember reading Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, where um, she had said, because the two of them worked the night shift together, she had said that actually she felt very safe with him. And she said something like, if she was in a dark alley, that she would want him to be with her. So, yes, you never really know what people are like, you know, oh, absolutely. behind closed doors. Right. And I grew up with him my entire life and didn't know until... 2020 showed me and the media showed me what really happened. I had no idea because I thought he was just a good dad who was kind of sick. He showed this wonderful person on the surface, but deep down, there's something extremely broken in him. Do you remember how in 2009 he told ABC that he shot two people? He seems to have dropped that story altogether. Yeah, you don't hear about that anymore. Um, 
I think everyone has dismissed it as not being a fact, but it has kind of disappeared out of that story, which seems to be a pretty integral part to that story. And if you're defending yourself against murder, I didn't murder someone, but I did murder these two other people. It just doesn't make any sense. It kind of seems like a bad idea to implicate yourself in two murders when you're trying to defend yourself of having committed a murder. I would imagine so, yeah. You made a good point, though. Saying that he murdered those two people actually was kind of a uh, pillar of his theory that the IBW was trying to get back at him. So that by dropping that story, he he really can't um, tie it all together anymore, which is maybe why when I asked him to explain how these events were connected to Alyssa disappearing, he didn't have an answer anymore. Oh, exactly. He's pointing you to everything that happened in the 70s, but then doesn't tie it back together to Alyssa. At the end, he even talks about how he was afraid I was going to run away just like Alyssa ran away. So there's those clues in there. Okay, so you do think she ran away? Do you think somebody took her? He's just trying to send you on a wild goose chase. So the story about having shot two people was just dropped. But another news story was introduced during my interview, which was that prior to the terrorist attack, for lack of a better word, when he was planning to blow up the IBW, he had actually a few years prior thought about blowing up another building or the same building. Yeah, this this is the first time I had heard of this, that he had dynamite nearly a decade before he had planned to do this other attack. So these are two attacks that he is now admitting to planning. The first with dynamite that he said that he deconstructed or disposed of in some type of way to build these pipe bombs that would do nothing but make a noise. Right, which if you wanted to make noise, you could just get fireworks, right? Absolutely. You can get a megaphone. You can get anything to make noise. Big roofing nails in there are going to hurt people. If a roofing nail comes at you at a very high speed, that's going to hurt a lot of people. Yeah, you don't need roofing nails to make noise. Exactly. You could absolutely just use fireworks. There's a reason that he made explosives instead of noisemakers. That's right. Besides, just like it wasn't a good idea to say you shot two people when you're trying to defend yourself from murder, it probably isn't a good idea to say that you had previously planned a terrorist attack when you are defending yourself from the accusation that you were planning on blowing up the IBW. Absolutely. In one breath, he says, the Phoenix Police Department planted these bombs. And in the next breath, he says, but I had bombs before or dynamite before. Right. So they they planted these bombs, but actually I had built them to make some noise. Yes. Well, he says both, right? I mean, at one point he says they planted them. Well, I just made those to make noise. He's lying. That is extremely silly. And again, tying back to the the murder. I didn't murder her, but I murdered them. I didn't make these bombs, but I made these. You know, it kind of makes me think of delusions of grandeur in a way, because if everyone is conspiring against you, then you must be a big deal. Absolutely. He must think he's extremely important for the entire Phoenix Police Department to be after him for, what, 50 years now? And his thinking is that it's because he's always sought justice. Right. He's always been the whistleblower. He's always done the right thing and told on people doing the wrong thing. And now he thinks that people are out to get him because of that. But really, he didn't have an effect on anyone's life. Has anyone come forward and said, yes, he told on me and it destroyed my entire life? No one remembers him. 
he wants to think that he had this huge impact on this organization and the Phoenix Police Department, and no one cares. Yes, he shows no sympathy for Alyssa. He shows no compassion for her. It, it doesn't even sound like he liked her. Right. He makes actually some disparaging comments about her. Oh, absolutely. And that comes back to what he said in real time when it was happening. You read the transcripts of the audio calls where he calls her horrible names, things you shouldn't call children. He doesn't say a kind word about her. All he talks about is how she was such a burden and how it was so hard to take care of her and how she needed so much help and was so rebellious. And he likes to deny that I was like that, but I was so much worse. So to me, none of this aligns. None of it makes any sense. It comes down to that he was trying to control her because she had a certain set of information about the abuse that was going on that he didn't want the world to know. So of course he bullies her and tells her that she's dumb. Because if you put a person down, you can control them. If you think you're so stupid and you can't do anything without this person in your life, you're not going to. Especially when you're 17 or younger and that's your entire world. You don't have another parent to go to. The siblings were moved out of the house. All she had was our dad who told her she was dumb and not good enough and would never amount to anything except for beauty college. If you follow our Facebook page, you probably saw the home video I posted. The setting is a campground where it appears Turney was staying with the two girls. Sarah, eight years old at the time, is recording Alyssa from a distance. 13-year-old Alyssa shouts the following in her direction. Yeah! Yeah! Yeah, it's a pervert. Turney then picks up some objects from the ground and throws them in Alyssa's direction. He's visibly angry as he grabs a camera from Sarah's hands. He then zooms in on Alyssa and says, Sarah found this tape while she was going through the family home videos, and we both found it to be really disturbing. It's so odd for a child to call her father a pervert. You can watch the video on Missing Alyssa's Facebook page. Back to Sarah. I would like to address the fact that he says, my own daughter didn't know what was going on because she didn't give a shit. I think that's extremely ridiculous to say about a 12-year-old. I just want to throw that out there. And he mentions that I was too embarrassed to hand out flyers about Alyssa, and that is 100% true. I thought she was going to be back. So no, I didn't want to hand out flyers to her friends at a mall that we all went to all the time. I thought that would not only be embarrassing for me, but embarrassing for her. And again, being 12, I didn't understand the gravity of the situation. So I think it's funny that he puts a lot of responsibility really back on me. You tell him, oh, she says she was arrested for shoplifting, and he calls me a liar. But I was arrested. He had to come pick me up from the mall. I was banned from the mall. So I remember this very clearly. It was the biggest trouble I'd ever been in in my entire life. It was extremely scary and traumatic, and I was put in handcuffs, and I'll never forget it. So for him to say that I'm a, this grand liar about being a bad kid is completely ridiculous. And I did very normal teenage things just like Alyssa. But I did skip school more often. I did drink more often. I did all of these things a lot more than she ever did. And with his permission, I remember I was living with my best friend in our house. She lived in my bedroom. These are two 16 year old girls living in the house. I have the master bedroom. I have my own private entrance in and out of this house. We go to Costco one day and I make a joke and I say, hey dad, you should buy me one of those mini fridges and fill it with beer. And his exact words were, do you want black or white? And which beer do you want? I was 16. But you're also the guy calling me out of school three days a week. 
you're the guy that's making breakfast for my 17-year-old boyfriend that lives with us. So you were allowed to have a live-in boyfriend, but Alyssa wasn't allowed to have boys over. Exactly. She was barely allowed to speak to boys. She was barely allowed to have a boyfriend. But I can have one live with us that you make eggs and bacon for all the time? Wow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Following the interview with Michael Turney, I received a long and detailed letter from Renee Walters. Renee is the daughter of Mike Turney's older brother, James Turney. In other words, she's Mike Turney's niece, which makes her Sarah's cousin. Renee has been estranged from her father since she left her home at the age of 15 because of his abusive behavior towards her and her mother Donna. She isn't eager to talk on the podcast, so I will narrate her story for you. Renee tells me that in 1974, when she was 11 years old, her father James Turney fired three bullets into her mother, Donna Russell, during an argument inside their home. Donna survived, but it's unclear whether James intended to kill her. Renee remembers that on that day, her uncle Mike Turney was taking her and her other siblings to McDonald's. They were still in the driveway of their home when they heard gunshots. She remembers running back inside the house and all the way to her parents' bedroom. Her letter reads, I saw my father fire the third shot into my mother while she laid face down in her own blood. My uncle was there to take us kids to eat, so there would be no witnesses. I knew something was wrong, so I refused to leave with him. While we argued in the front yard, I heard the first shot. I bolted through the front door and heard the second shot while running through the hallway. I opened their door in time to see him fire the third shot. He jerked when I opened the door. It grazed her hip, but I am convinced he meant to kill her. The pure evil I saw in his eyes scared me. He saw me and punched the wall out of anger. So Renee believes she stopped James from killing her mother. She remembers running back outside to ask Michael Turney for help, but that he refused to follow her in. Eventually, neighbors drove Donna to the hospital. The police arrived on the scene and Michael Turney told them the kids didn't see anything, so that they were never questioned. Family members then helped dispose of evidence including the revolver used to shoot Donna. Renee believes James' motive was to punish Donna for leaving him. Aside from shooting Donna, he kicked her out of the house and didn't allow her to see her kids. Once inside the hospital, Donna was terrified of James. She failed to appear to sign a complaint and the district attorney never pursued the case. I was surprised that charges for assault with intent to commit murder could be dropped simply because the victim refused to testify. I turned to Detective Summershoe for answers, and he reminded me that laws and attitudes towards domestic violence were different at the time. He explained the following, quote, Today, the state would assume prosecution in the case because of domestic violence laws, even without the victim cooperating. A better understanding of the cycle of domestic violence crimes and some egregious examples like the O.J. Simpson case helped enact new laws, but they did not come into being until the late 80s and 90s, end quote. Even today, though, domestic violence is treated like any other crime, where if the victim is unwilling to participate, it's likely there will be no trial. So according to Renee, her uncle Michael Turney, who at the time was a deputy sheriff, was an accomplice to this crime. 
Michael helped James by distracting the children and later covering up the crime scene. Renee claims Michael Turney was let go from the sheriff's office due to this cover-up. Turney, on the other hand, has always claimed he was let go because he told on illegal practices within the organization. However, it must be noted that an examination of his Maricopa County Sheriff's Office personnel file shows that he was not terminated, instead resigned voluntarily. His resignation happened in 1974, the same year of Donna's shooting. Despite reading about this assault and other disturbing rumors regarding the extended Turney family and the police records, so far I've kept them out of the podcast because they didn't pertain directly to Alyssa's disappearance. But since Renee reached out to me, I decided to talk about this because it could help put the whole story into context. It explains some of the events presented in this podcast and could even provide some clues as to what happened to Alyssa. The reason being that aside from her recollection of this terrifying event, Renee paints a picture of a severely dysfunctional family. She speaks of mental illness, child abuse, and even incest. Even more sinister, she thinks James got away with murder in the past. I'll discuss this in the next episode. Renee says that both James and Michael Turney are master manipulators. James recorded all phone calls in the home just like Michael did. A map James drew of the phone tapping devices in his house backs up her accusations. I'll post that on the Facebook page. The two brothers were at times close, but often seemed to despise each other. They had what you would call a love-hate relationship. They always acted like normal people on the outside, says Renee. Good parents. But their true characters were very dark. They kept their dark sides well hidden. Renee believes that even in their old age, they're still dangerous. She explains that her father James molested both her sister Jamie and one of their stepsisters. She says incest and child abuse have run in the family for multiple generations. Renee has no personal recollection of being molested, but she thinks she may have blocked off the memories. But I've blocked all that out and I don't want to try to go back and unblock it. Whatever was there, I blocked it for a reason. She has some flashbacks of wearing a flimsy woman's negligee as a young teen. For years, she also suffered terrifying nightmares revolving around a door. Renee left her home at 15, and it took her a long time to get over the trauma and let go of all the hurt and anger. Nowadays, she has cut off all ties with attorneys and escaped the cycle of abuse. I'll be posting her entire letter on the Facebook page Missing Alyssa if you want to know more details. After Renee, I spoke to her younger sister Jamie. She reached out to Sarah a few months ago and told us some things that she had never revealed to detectives when they questioned her during their investigation. When Jamie was 13 years old, her uncle Michael Turney asked her to come and babysit his three boys for the summer. He offered to pay her, and she was happy to do so. We're talking about Turney's three sons from his first marriage. Turney hadn't met Barbara yet, and Alyssa and Sarah weren't born at the time. You can hear the story directly from her. You know, one summer, I, I came there to babysit my cousins. I was actually pretty excited about it. Uh, I was 13, and my uncle, the first year that he'd asked if I wanted to come babysit, and I thought, wow, yeah, of course, and I was going to get paid, and he had a pool, and actually the summer was going pretty good, and we he actually had a planned trip to Disneyland, and I was super excited because I was going to get to go with them, so... Really looking forward to that. One day, her uncle asked her to give him a back rub. He worked out, he had this dojo thing. It was out in his garage. And on that particular night, he, you know, he'd been working all day and had been watching the boys. He came home and he did his little workout thing or whatever he does out there. And he came back in and he was saying that he was really sore. So he asked me if I wouldn't mind, you know, initially he said, could you step on my back? I was like, yeah. And by the way, our whole family does that. So that I didn't think that that was weird. 
um, because we all have, you know, back problems, pretty much, most of us anyway. So long story short, I walked on his back, you know, at 13, I didn't weigh, you know, too, too much, but um, then he said, hey, do you, you know, you mind rubbing it a little bit, like up here by the shoulders and my neck and stuff, and again, he was just shirtless, he had pants on and everything, and he was in his living room, laying on his own, you know, in the living room with the boys, sitting on the couch, watching the movie or TV at the time, and so there was nothing seedy about it, you know what I'm saying, so, and I didn't massage him in any weird way, I mean, I was simply just rubbing his back, and and trying to help him work out his muscle and then he was like wow that feels better you know and kind of gets up and then puts his shirt back on and goes back to making dinner which is what he was doing and later that night however something disturbing happened so then nothing else occurred after that night anyway i went to bed and i got the kids to bed you know he kind of did his own thing after dinner or whatever and didn't see him again and I'm in the room, room I was trying to fall asleep, and all of a sudden he comes in the door. He's like standing in the doorway, and you know I can see it's him, and he's going, "You sleeping?" I'm like, "I'm trying to," <laughs> and he was like, uh, "Well, I just you know wanted to know if you wanted me to rub your back," and I was like, "No." And I literally sat up in the bed and started to, like, move towards the wall because it was creepy. You know, it was like my uncle standing in the doorway quietly asking me if I want my back room. He physically saw me recoil, and he left the room, and he did not try to come back. And I, of course, called my dad and stepmom, and, actually, and I said, I, I just, I think something weird happened last night. And she was like, what? And then I told her what happened, and then she came over and picked me up, and basically I abruptly left. I was supposed to be there for the summer, and I abruptly left, and I was supposed to go with them to Disneyland, which was like a week or two after that or something, and I was so crushed that I couldn't go to Disneyland because I told my stepmom that my uncle had come into my room. I said, I don't know what he thought he was going to do, but he asked me if I wanted him to rub my back, and I said no, and it was just creepy. But how did, your, how did your father react to that? I don't, you know, to be honest, I wasn't allowed back. <laughs> the whole time I, you know, was at home, I was kept from his house from that day forward. If we saw him, it was at, you know, family something or another, or up at our cabin up north, but we didn't, I didn't, wasn't allowed to go back to his house. Although she was very young, Jamie immediately sensed something was not right because she was all too familiar with sexual abuse. I'm a victim of incest. My father repeatedly molested me starting at the age of nine. He's Mike's brother. So I knew very well, you know, what these kinds of, I don't know what you call it, we used to, I don't know, my counselors called grooming. And my dad did things like that to me very young, you know, and he wanted, you know, touching my legs, putting his hands into my legs, just stuff like that long before he actually molested me and the first time. And this continued until I left home at 17. So, um... But yes, I very much knew that the actions of a man that was kind of desirous of, you know, me mm -hmm. because of what my dad had done. Jamie's family didn't believe her. Or if they did, they did nothing about it. In order for me to be in my family and to stay and have relatives, to have my siblings talk to me, in particular my brothers, um, I had to act like that never happened because it didn't happen to them. So because it wasn't their experience, it wasn't their reality. It's like nobody wanted to talk about it, you know, it was the elephant in the room nobody wanted to talk about. So for me to survive in a family 
that couldn't believe that he would have done that to me. I hadn't stopped talking about it. I mean, I told his mom and my aunt, my grandmother and, and aunt, his sister, that he was doing this to me when I was nine, and they went to him with it. <laughs> they went to him with it and told him that I was lying. I had a nervous breakdown after that. I remember my grandpa coming and literally pulling me out from underneath the bed where I was biting and scratching at everybody and acting like a wild animal, according to the people who saw me, because I literally lost my mind. I like had a like a, just a mental snap. I mean, if my own grandmother and my aunt didn't believe me. Mm-hmm. I, I had I awesome. stopped believing it myself. None of this was ever reported. No one ever reported sex abuse. This, he could be hurting other children. Is that a concern of yours at all? What's that? Is, is that a concern for you? I mean, he could be hurting other children. That's why he's not allowed to see my daughter. What about, like, does he have other grandchildren that you, I mean? Yeah, and I've warned my siblings, and they don't care. Oh, my gosh. They think I'm crazy. Years later, Jamie tried confronting her father in an effort to move on and get over the trauma. He, he was an alcoholic when all this was going on, and I remember co- confronting him about it because my counselors made me. And I tried to get him to come forward with, with help, you know, for me so I could process it. And I just asked him, to, I just said, why did you do this to me? And he said, do what to you? And when I told him, he said to me, he goes, Jamie, you know I was drinking back then. I, he goes, I was having blackouts. I don't remember anything. That's the closest mm-hmm. I've ever gotten to an apology. When she was questioned by detectives in 2009, Jamie didn't divulge his story. Although it's difficult for most people to relate to this, she says she still loved her uncle and initially didn't believe he could have hurt Alyssa. It wasn't until she heard all the details uncovered by the investigation that she saw things in a different light. What was your reasoning for keeping that information to yourself? I didn't divulge it at the time because of Sarah. Sarah was still very much believing that my uncle or her dad um, was innocent. And I didn't know if he was guilty. I mean, maybe that story had nothing to do with anything. My uncle was my hero growing up. I mean, I love this man. He was there for me during my parents' really bitter divorce. And after my dad shot my mom and he took us all in and him and Aunt Cheryl and, you know, just a really good man. But overall, he had all the markings of a good dad. And by comparison to my dad, the man was a saint. From what Jamie could tell, her uncle was a great father to his three boys. Keep in mind, this was long before Alyssa and Sarah were born and several decades before Alyssa disappeared. In other news, those of you that follow my Facebook page Missing Alyssa might have heard about the killing spree that recently happened in Phoenix. On Thursday, May 31st, Dr. Stephen Pitt was shot to death. Dr. Pitt was the forensic psychiatrist who had evaluated and written a report along with Dr. Aaron Nelson about Turney's risk of future dangerousness. The state had requested this evaluation before sentencing him for possession of bombs and illegal firearms. I talked about this in episode four. The report reads, and I quote, I have significant concerns about the risk for future dangerousness in this case. We have an individual who has demonstrated a long history of rigid, controlling personality type, who has written extensively about his plans for violence, made allusions to violence, and more so than just writing about them, gathered and accumulated the means to carry out those acts. He has a long history of externalizing blame perceiving injustices, feeling that groups have conspired against him, and from where Mr. Turney sits, in fact, it would feel as if that has actually played out. End quote. It's chilling to hear these statements now that Turney has in fact been released. 
So on May 31st, Pitt was shot to death outside his office. During the course of his career, he had worked on a number of high-profile cases, but Sarah feared that her father might be involved. However, the suspect went on to kill five more people, some of which were connected to his bitter divorce. He was identified as Dwight Jones, and the killing spree ended with Jones' suicide in a hotel. In the next episode, you will hear from Donna Russell, who will give you her own version of the story. James is a very, very evil, screwed up person. And I know that he's close to his brother. James could have helped him get rid of the body. Visit the page Missing Alyssa for the video and material mentioned in this episode. Missing Alyssa is produced and hosted by me, Octavia Zapala. Audio editing and production help by Raz Yalov. Our original music was created by Michael Fornwalt. The artwork was done by Michelle Reyes. 